This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Are You There, God? It's Me, Margarita, Cocktails with a Literary Twist by Tim Fetterly. Literature, puns, and alcohol collide in this clever follow-up to Tequila Mockingbird. Tim Fetterly's Tequila Mockingbird has become one of the world's best-selling cocktail books and resonated with bartenders and book clubs everywhere. Now in this much-anticipated follow-up, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margarita. Fetterly has shaken up 49 all-new, all-delicious drink recipes paired with his trademark puns and clever commentary on more of history's most beloved books. Are You There, Goddess Me, Margarita is available where books are sold, and we thank them for sponsoring. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Ukara. We're recording on Wednesday, October 10th. Kim, hello. Hello, Alice. How are you? Um, I am swell. It's been rainy all day, so that's been like really nice and soothing, uh, but also like weirdly hot, but I haven't been outside, so I just get to observe the rain from indoors. It's been so raining it's a been lot great. here also, um, and I'm sort of... It feels like it's been raining for like a week and a half straight, even though like it really hasn't. But I'm kind of I'm kind of over it myself. But I do I do get the soothing part. Awesome. Well, I have a bunch of follow up um, from last week. So, which I think normally we have like one, but I think we've got at least like three or four yeah, or something. Let's do it. Week. So real quick, um, we were talking about the Jersey Devil. Or I was. Yes. <laughs> and then we were <laughs> discussing it after um, because I was recommending a book about the strange case of the Jersey Devil. And you had a question because in the subtitle it mentions Ben Franklin. Yes. And so it's like, how was Benjamin Franklin involved? And I did not have the answer at the time. Well, what I can tell you now is that his involvement consisted mainly of – so you know how it's – maybe you don't remember all of the exact specifics from what <laughs> I said, which is such a shock. But um, in the original story of the Jersey Devil, this monster from New Jersey, it was about Mother Leeds. This woman gave birth to this child, and it was her 13th, and she said, may it be a devil, and then it you know flew out the window. <laughs> but anyway, so it turns out that Benjamin Franklin's – rival in sort of the almanac business was Titus Leeds. And so, yeah. And then there was all of this stuff where they were being super snarky to each other. And he ended up saying that he was, he made all these astrological predictions and said, Titus Leeds is going to die. (laughs) And Titus... Titus Leeds in his almanac was like, well, I'm alive. And then he was like, oh, my gosh, there's a ghost speaking through Titus Leeds' almanac. Um, I cannot believe – actually, I can. I can't believe that, like, two dudes were so snarky that they were, like, digging each other in their editions of the Farmer's Almanac. Like, that is so great. It's uh, it was a, it was a little nuts, but um, also in in line with I think what history knows about Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. younger Benjamin Franklin. But anyway, yeah. so 
apparently there was something to do with not only this whole ghost thing, but also there was like a crest that had dragons. And so the author's theory is that this kind of came about and then the story came forward about this Jersey devil. But I was picturing these people living in like a cottage and a farm. And then it's like, oh, no, no, no. He was like a publisher and they like were pretty well to do and all this stuff. So yeah, it was really interesting. So that's even better than I imagined. 100%. Um, oh, I wanted to, as a side note, thank the people who have been rating, reviewing the podcast. Again, you can do that um, if you search on your Apple Podcast app and look up Book Riot for real. Um, if you rate us, it helps other people find us. We really appreciate it. So thank you to the people who have done that. Um, and yeah, right. And the other one is uh, my last follow up is that there was a uh, gentleman on Twitter who gave us another awesome subtitle. I love that people are Mm -hmm. sending us really good nonfiction subtitles. Um, So this book, which came out this year, is called Boomtown, The Fantastical Saga of Oklahoma City, Its Chaotic Founding, Its Apocalyptic Weather, Its Purloined Basketball Team, and The Dream of Becoming a World-Class Metropolis by Sam Anderson. (laughs) That's a subtitle. I love the repetition in that one. That's really great. It was yeah. awesome. Do you have any follow-up from last um, week? Yeah. One of the the ghost books that we had on the list and then ended up not mentioning um, is one that I I think uh, would be a good one to just mention. As uh, We talked about stories of the supernatural. And one that we didn't mention that I think is probably really great is Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife by Mary Roach, um, which is just a book about the science, the contemporary science of the afterlife. So perhaps an interesting um, companion to the book that I mentioned, which was Ghost Hunters, William James and the Hunt uh, and the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death. So that was kind of Victorian era ish scientists and then spook is more contemporary science of the supernatural so another potential supernatural read for the month of october that's a good one all right so with that we will shift into our regular uh, first segment which is new books these are books that are out soon or out pretty recently from when we're recording um things that we either have read and are excited about or just know about and think that you guys might be interested in also um so i'm gonna go first and the book that i am going to talk about is one that i'm actually like very nearly finished reading which never happens for this segment because i'm garbage at reading new like reading ahead for new books but i actually like (laughs) i'm within like 25 pages of finishing one i'm so excited and so the book is called the library book by susan orlean and it comes out october 16th from simon and schuster Uh, and the book is an account of a 1986 fire at the los angeles public library that um at the time that it burned reached like 2000 degrees Um, It burned for more than seven hours, uh, and it destroyed 400,000 books and damaged 700,000 more books. Um, And so this 1986 fire, like, they're still not entirely sure what happened. Um, A guy was um, arrested for setting it, and I haven't gotten to the part where it kind of definitely concludes what happens to him. But um, he was a – the guy (laughs) was kind of a – an actor and a, and a liar. So even if they like kind of figure out and convict him of it, like there's not, it's, it's not clear what actually happened. Um, but the book is beyond just being a story of that one particular instance in fire. It's also um, just like this really lovely book about libraries. Um, and it's about like why we love libraries, what their role in society is, um, why libraries are important in our public spaces and as third spaces for people to be in. Um 
And it's a, it's really interesting because it's not a super straight narrative of a book. It reads a lot more to me like a collection of essays about different parts of library life that just happens to have sort of this investigation of the fire and the history of the Los Angeles library as kind of a um, a through line that all of these other ideas are sort of hanging on to. Um, so there's an, a chapter that's just about like what it is like to work at the public information desk at a major metropolitan library and um, where she just kind of, I think, probably sat at the desk for a day and then just like recorded all the crazy questions people came in and asked um, and like what the librarians deal with. Um, there's one chapter that's just sort of a history of arson. So like a very brief, very high level history of like why people commit arson and like how complicated it is to figure out who commits, uh, who sets fires that way deliberately. Um, there's one chapter that's about security at the library. So I think she just followed a security guard around for a couple of afternoons just to see what they deal with. And it's just really very charming and warm. And if you love libraries as I do, I think it's very, um, just very, very charming and very lovely. So uh, that book is called The Library Book by Susan Orlean out in Oct- on October 16th from Simon & Schuster. That's such a good one. I um I know that that was a super sort of like hot pick for Book Expo this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that Susan Orlean was really, really popular. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll get that <laughs> galley. And I got to the line and it was at, at Book Expo, for those who don't know, you wait a lot of times to get um, early copies of the book. And I was, I didn't know that the line was so long and it was enormous. And I got to it and I was like, oh, uh, is this for this book? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, so I can just get in the line though? And they were like, oh no, it's ticketed. And I was like, oh, Uh, are they? Yeah. And they were completely out and it was just like, oh my gosh, this is a huge book. So I'm really mm -hmm. glad that you talked about it. Um, That fire is obviously devastating. But um, and I am well, the only part that I've read of it has only like been talking about the fire. So I'm really glad that mm-hmm. she then gets in more. It's, it's like a, a love letter to libraries, as you were saying. Um, that is awesome. Yeah, it's it's really good. Okay, so my first pick uh, is Invisible: The Forgotten Story of the Black Woman Lawyer Who Took Down America's Most Powerful Mobster by Stephen L. Carter. And it comes out October 9th from Henry Holt. Speaking of good subtitles. Um, so Eunice Con- Hunton Carter was a graduate of Smith College and the granddaughter of enslaved people living in New York in the 1930s. And with the strategy she devised, Lucky Luciano, the most powerful mafia boss in history, was convicted. Um this is amazing. I did not know anything about her, which I, I'm assuming is why the book is called Invisible. So I started it and it, st- it starts in Atlanta at like the turn of the century where she was um, born and where she, you know, her parents were and they were both like sort of social justice fighters. They worked for the YMCA. And then um, there was a race riot, um, uh, which I feel like when people hear that term, they they don't think of white people as the aggressors, but they very, very frequently are and certainly were in this case. Um There was a race riot and it was extremely dangerous. And so her family moved north, um, which is how she ended up eventually in New York. So when special prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey selected 20 lawyers to help him clean up the city's underworld, she was the only member of his team who was not a white male. 
which I'm like, that's amazing, mm-hmm. especially for the 1930s. And one of the things that they talk about in the beginning when they're kind of talking about the raid that was all set up to like start taking down Lucky Luciano, they did not tell anyone what the raid was about, like any of the police officers, for a lot until like something like half an hour before oh, it wow. happened because the corruption was so bad. Um, it's really fascinating. He covers a lot of ground. The author is um, uh, Eunice. I'm so sorry. I like just completely lost her name. Eunice Hunting Carter. Such a good name. Um, here's uh, her. Sorry. He was her grandson. I'm doing an awesome job with this book. I am so sorry <laughs> to Stephen Carter. This is really an awesome book and it's out right now and you should read it. But essentially he covers um, not just her professional and political successes that made her one of the most famous black women in America in the 1940s, um, but also this kind of fact that her triumphs were overshadowed by not only prejudice, but the fact that she had this really difficult relationship with her younger brother, Alpheus, who was an avowed communist, um, which is obviously, especially in the mid-20th century, a very dangerous thing to be. And he was in prison with Dashiell Hammett, who was his friend, um, during the McCarthy era. So it kind of covers this vast you know, time span from um, at least like 1900 to uh, the 1950s. So again, if you're interested, which you should be, it is Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most powerful mobster by Stephen L. Carter. Excellent. I'm so glad you mentioned that one. Uh, I saw it, I think, at the library. and um, No, not at the library. I don't remember. But it looked really great, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, so my second book is uh, it's called Noncompliant. A Lone Whistleblower Exposes the Giants of Wall Street by Carmen Segura. And it is out October 16th from Nation Books. Uh, And so this is a memoir by a woman who in 2011 started working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, And she was going to be the regulator. um, I think her name title is risk manager. Um, I could be wrong about that. I can't remember. But um, working at the Federal Reserve supervising Goldman Sachs. And so 2011 is pretty shortly after the financial crisis. And so we assume that there's a lot of uh, regulation happening there. But um, as she got started, she slowly learned that actually there was a pretty chummy relationship between Goldman and the regulators who were supposed to be regulating them. Uh, And so she started making recordings and started taking notes and all of these things. And her uh, recordings and stuff were eventually part of a This American Life episode that exposed the problem of the relationship between the Federal Reserve of New York and Goldman Sachs. Um, and so this book is a memoir about her experiences as a whistleblower and then also everything that she saw and experienced and um, thought was wrong while she was working there. Um, and I started this one uh, earlier this week. And I have to say the first part is a little bit confusing Um I don't really know anything about the specifics of this. And so I feel like I just kind of got dropped right into this story that I am missing some kind of background for. And I'm not sure if that is my fault or the book's fault or what exactly is happening. But um, the narrative itself is really interesting. She has a very like clean and engaging writing style. And so I'm hoping that as I kind of get into it a little bit like that, confusion I feel right now is going to get resolved. Um, I'm optimistic that that is going to be the case, but um, it starts out a little bit. It's a little jarring, I I felt like, as I first got into it. But overall, I think it's going to be really good. I'm excited to try and keep reading it. So uh, the book is called Noncompliant, A Lone Whistleblower Exposes the Giants of Wall Street by Carmen Segarra. That's awesome. And that also sounds like a very you sort of book. Like, I'm not surprised (laughs) that you're reading that. That's awesome. It does. 
Um, and sort of coincidentally, in terms of uh, books that are very akin to our normal styles, uh, <laughs> my next recommendation is My Squirrel Days by Ellie Kemper. It's out October 9th from Scribner. Uh, I love comic memoirs, as we've talked about numerous times on this podcast. This might be my favorite comic memoir that I've read. Um wow. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. This was another title that was out at Book Expo, and I was like, "Eh, <laughs> I'll find that <laughs> later." I like her, but you know, like I don't, I don't need to wait mm-hmm. again in like a giant line for her. So this is a, uh, according to Scribner, a hilarious and uplifting collection of essays about one pale woman's journey from Midwestern naive to Hollywood semi-celebrity to outrageously reasonable New Yorker. Um, <laughs> What uh, it it basically covers her life. Like I I finished it I think like two days ago and I laughed so hard throughout so much of it. I told my friend I was like you know how sometimes a writer just either gets your personality or you just completely are like in sync with their sense of humor or mm-hmm. something. And like everything that she was writing, I was like, this is amazing and perfect. I kept sending people quotes from it. <laughs> um, she has like stories of growing up in suburban St. Louis and having this crush on David Letterman and then being on the David Letterman show and then moving to Los Angeles and accidentally falling on Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, which is also hilarious. As one story I want to hear. It's so good. Anyway, it's also a quick read because, you know, it's a comic memoir. Um, But I super recommend it, obviously. So that is My Squirrel Days by Ellie Kemper, and it is out now. Excellent. That is the best one you've ever read. That is a a big endorsement. I am – I'm in in for that. Um, So my third book is one that is a little bit outside, I think, of what my normal reading is, but I have heard good things about it, and so I wanted to mention it and talk about it a little bit anyway. Um, The book is called In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown by Nathaniel Philbrick. Uh, And so I will just preface this also by saying that, like, most of what I know about the Battle of Yorktown is from the musical Hamilton. So... I know very little, but this book is about uh, the Battle of Yorktown. And so after five years of the Revolutionary War, George Washington uh, realized that the only way to defeat the British was to get the help of the French Navy. And so he sends the Marquis de Lafayette to try and if the song is accurate, to go and get the French Navy to help them bring and win the war. Um, So he spends the time trying to coordinate the army with the warships to get them all in one place. And then in September of 1781, uh, the Battle of Yorktown happens. And so the battle is today recognized as one of the most important naval naval engagements in the history of the world. And it's the Battle Battle of the Chesapeake at Yorktown. And so it's fought with the French and the British, and then it helps make the victory at Yorktown possible. So uh, In the Hurricane's Eye is an account of that time and that part of the revolution. Um, and I, this is maybe not fair, but like this one, as I like was looking at it and kind of skimming through different parts, I was like, this is a very dad history book, um, which is not normally my... <laughs> cup of tea necessarily, but um, I am automatically going to look at anything that I can tie back to Hamilton uh, because I am a history, like weak, pathetic, uh, non-history person in that way. Um, And this one seems like it's good and other people might find it interesting even though it's not my normal um, nonfiction reading jam. So uh, the book is In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown by Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, which is out October 16th from Viking. Oh, gosh. I have so many follow-up questions (laughs) 
some things about that. No, um, first of all, do you think in the hurricane's eye is any kind of Hamilton illusion? <gasps> oh my God, it probably is. God, that's good. I know. Now I just want to sing Hamilton, but I'm not because that would be <laughs> terrible and we would like, get one star reviews because they'd be like, stop that woman from singing, please. <laughs> well, uh, it's just but- not, that's not the podcast. Um, no. That's the only thing that really should prevent you. <laughs> Uh, I also – this sounds like exactly like the kind of thing I would want to read except for the fact that there are literally like four Nathaniel Philbrick books that I have on my list already. So I Yeah, feel I like- was looking at the back and he's got like one, two, three, four, five, six. He's got seven books listed on the back of the book like with praise for his other books. So he is a, he is a prolific history writer. That's for sure. I want to point out you just counted up and that reminded me of Ten Dual Commandments. But <laughs> – Anyway, um, oh, I felt like I had another question and then I don't want to stall things out so we can just keep moving. But that sounds super good. Um, Let's see. And that's out. Oh, October 16th. Oh, so soon. All these Mm -hmm. new releases. Um, Okay. So my last new pick is called Impeachment, an American History by John Meacham, Timothy Naftali, Peter Baker, and Jeffrey Engel. It's at October 16th from Random House. Um, I want to do a side note uh, about this because I originally had a different book on here that's coming out that I think is is a good book. But the author of it uh, was basically on that list of men in journalism who suck. And especially in light of recent events, I don't want to promote those kind of books. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, cause I was really struggling with that today and I was like, well, it is a book that I like, but, um, yeah. So now instead I looked more into this book and started reading it and I think it's amazing. So here we are impeachment in American history. So what this is, the reason it's by four different authors is that they each are writing essays about sort of different times of impeachment in America. Yeah. Mm, and the interesting. like from the beginning, I was like, this is really interesting. Like I, you know, I read I read the intros and the prefaces because my professors in school yelled at me too when I was there. <laughs> but he the the person who was writing the preface who also writes um the essay about the constitution and the kind of section on impeachment and what was probably meant and why it was put there. Um he talks about how we are – He, he it, the book goes up through Comey getting fired. And in the intro, they talk about that. And they're basically saying this word has been thrown around a lot lately. Um, so here is how it was used in the past. Here's why it was used. And kind of going into, again, the sort of historical reasoning and significance and use and all of this stuff. So um, it talks about Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, um, Bill Clinton – and it just seems really, really good. I've really enjoyed I didn't honestly want to come and record at the time we had set because I was like, <laughs> I want to keep reading this book. But now I get to recommend it to all of you. It's also like a pretty quick read. I think I was already uh, – I was obviously reading this on my Kindle. I think I was like 15% through and I started it after work. Um, so again, that is Impeachment and American History by John Meacham, Timothy Naftali, Peter Baker, and Jeffrey Engel. And it's out October 16th. Excellent. That seems very timely, like a very good thing given our current conversations and everything that's going on in the world right now. Uh, excellent. So uh, now we'll do our second sponsor. Uh, so this week's second sponsor is The Golden Boy, A Doctor's Journey with Addiction by Grant Matheson, and that's from Acorn Press. And so before opioids destroyed Grant Matheson's career, he was a pillar of his community. 
a respected physician, a loving husband, and a devoted father, and a trusted friend. Uh, He was a straight-laced guy who grew up to be a clean-living adult, um, so it took everyone by surprise uh, when he became addicted to narcotics in his 30s. Um, His story hit the local newspaper when he was found, or in the local press, when he was found guilty of professional misconduct related to his addiction, including overprescribing painkillers to patients so that he could buy them back. Um, This was an infraction that cost him his physician's license. Uh, It was suspended. Um, And so this memoir is an account of his addiction and what it cost him, uh, his cost him his relationships, his career, and almost his life. Um, So it takes him from the very first days of Matheson's drug addiction to the moment when he decided to rebuild his life through rehab and recovery. Um, So that book is The Golden Boy, A Doctor's Journey with Addiction by Grant Matheson. Um, We thank Acorn Press for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Uh, And so with that, we will shift into our weekly theme. Uh, As we talked about last time, we're going to do kind of spooky stuff in October because that's a time of the year to read spooky things. Uh, And one thing that we both find extremely creepy uh, in various forms is uh, true crime. So this week we're doing uh, some of our favorite true crime books. Um, And we've talked about like what kinds of flavors of true crime we like before, I think. But why don't you say that again, Alice? Like what is your jam when it comes to true crime books? Oh, gosh. I mean, I do like a historical book, meaning like 19th century, uh, especially if it's something weird like some servant girl in Massachusetts in 1805 was found, uh, not to get too Mm -hmm. specific. Um, (laughs) But I also – I don't like it when it gets overly kind of um, lurid and to the point where, you know, it feels kind of exploitative where it's just like, oh, here's like really gross stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like when they get into psychology and uh, yeah, pretty much that. What about you? Yeah, kind of similar. I contempor- Really, contemporary true crime is hard for me. Um, it gets kind of in my head. So I like historical true crime and I, I tend to like um, like historical memoir, like true crime memoirs. So people who like have a connection to it and like writing and processing some of that. So I think at least two of the ones I'm going to talk about today are kind of in that vein um oh first i just i'm so sorry to interrupt i just realized that like all of my recs are the opposite of what i just said i like so uh don't (laughs) don't take that into account at all never mind expunge it all okay please say your first pick on we on we go all right so my first pick for our true crime bonanza is the red parts by maggie nelson and this is a true crime memoir um and the premise of it is that in 2004 maggie nelson was uh, just getting ready to publish her first novel, which was a novel in verse about the life and death of her aunt Jane, who had been murdered 35 years before. Um, and her killer had the case was still unsolved, but um, the police and her family really thought, even though they couldn't prove it, that she was the victim of this serial killer that was kind of going around and murdering women at that time in the area that she lived. Um, but then, thanks to DNA evidence, uh, right before this book was or her novel was going to get published, uh, they found someone, um, they DNA matched with someone who they believed solved the crime. And so that man was brought to trial um, based on that DNA evidence. And so The Red Parts, this memoir, is about um, following the trial. So Maggie Nelson and her mother follow the trial. And so it's what that experience is like, um, thinking about how this crime and her aunt's death had sort of hung over the family and what it had meant to them to have this um, really tragic event in their past and, and affecting their present. Um, and then it also is a, a book that interrogates our obsessions with violence and missing women, um, but also like grief and justice and empathy. And um, it's, it's a very It's just a beautiful book. Um, It's weird to say that about true crime, I think, but um, it's just very thoughtful and very um, 
grounded and very not it's not exploitative at all it's very centered on their family and kind of what this has meant to them and i really i think it's really really good um so the book is the red parts by maggie nelson gosh our obsession with missing women is very accurately phrased mm-hmm. um why is that i bet that book explains it okay um going on the tbr list so my first pick is a true crime classic. It's The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. This is a 1980 autobiographical and biographical uh, true crime book written by Anne Rule about the serial killer Ted Bundy, who she knew personally before and after his arrest for a series of murders. And by series, this is in the tens, right? Like the, Ted Bundy is extraordinarily – I was about to say prolific, but I feel like that's a positive term. And I know that people say prolific serial killer, but again – Uh, I don't think that's Mm -hmm. the right word. Anyway, so this is the story of one of the most fascinating killers in American history of his magnetic power, uh, his sort of double life. Again, he worked at this crisis hotline next to Anne Rule. That's how she knew him. And then they kind of became friends. Um, And she absolutely, even after he was arrested, she did not think of him as this type of person because he was so genial and like kind and all this. And it's just this – just insane ability, right, to be able to have that kind of extremely dichotomous kind of life. Um, so she has this uh, – as as she follows the case, and again, this came out in 1980, um, she pieces together this really terrifying picture of, of this man that she thought she knew, but of course it turns out she didn't. Um, so again, that is The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Ooh, that is intense. Dang. Um Good pick. All right. So my uh, second pick is, uh, I think, similar to my first one, and it's kind of the same vein of people grappling with um, crime in their past and and what it did for them and their families. And it's called After the Eclipse, A Mother's Murder and a Daughter's Search by Sarah Perry. Uh, And so the the crime at the center of this book is that um, when Sarah Perry was 12, her mother, Crystal, was murdered in their home in Burl, Maine. And she was... um, Her father was not in the picture, so it was just her and her mother. Um, Sarah was at home when the um, man killed her mother, and so she has these very vivid but also very sketchy remembrances of that incident just because she was a child. Um, She escapes, and she um, is obviously not murdered. That's such a weird thing to say. Anyway, she escapes from – her home. Um, and the, the police investigated her mother's murder for more than a decade and they did, they couldn't put a case together. They couldn't find anyone. So Sarah grew up, um, with other family that she wasn't really close to. She, um, struggled with abandonment issues between her mother and her father. She was interrogated by the police a bunch of times because they were trying to like pull more information out of her that she may have remembered. Um, and she just has to rebuild her life after this really, traumatic experience of, of losing her mother violently. Um, and so eventually they, um, they're able to charge and charge someone with the crime. Um, and so Sarah has to go through the experience of the trial. Um, but then of course, after he is convicted, she still has questions about why and what happened. And so the book is kind of her exploration of that. So it, um, the structure of it is really interesting. Um, I read this one quite a while ago and I didn't, pull the book out to look at it. But I think it kind of structures between sort of like a contemporary narrative of like what she was going through investigating this story, but then also goes back to the murder and then kind of what happened to her afterwards. And also like a story about her mother that she loved and was very close to. So it's a very, um, it's a very thoughtful, um, 
yeah, very thoughtful book. Um, and just, it's a, it's a really good one again. Uh, so that is After the Eclipse, A Mother's Murder and a Daughter's Search by Sarah Perry. Oh my gosh. When you said that she was in the house when her mother was murdered, mm-hmm. my eyes like bugged out of my head. That it's that, that part is ex- the, the parts that, she, so it is in like, it doesn't feel like true crime in the like spooky kind of Ted Bundy sense, but like the parts that she wrote about that time and what happened and what she remembers and what she has been able to piece together is so vivid and so just chilling um, that like if you're looking to be scared, like that part is, it really unsettled me. Um, I thought that part of it was very just good, good writing, good everything. Gosh. Uh, and speaking of being chilled, Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my next pick is uh, I talked about this when it first came out. Um, and then I think we talked about it again because uh, there was a I read it. There was it a follow up. Um, and also follow up. Yeah. yeah. There's so many reasons to keep talking about this book. It is I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Um, so this is, again, the true crime account of the Golden State Killer, the elusive serial rapist turned murderer who terrorized California for over a decade. And it is told by Michelle McNamara this amazing journalist who was incredibly obsessed with this case and which she also kind of chronicles in the book as she, you know, goes and interviews police officers and talks with families and, you know, just really immerses herself in this case. She, um, of course, also tragically died while researching it and while writing the book. Um, And her husband, uh, Patton Oswalt, made sure that the book was published this year. After the book came out, also, of course, the Golden State Killer was caught, which was amazing and unbelievable. Um, I feel like most people think that it has a lot to do with Michelle McNamara's work, um, if mm-hmm. only because of her highlighting and publicizing this case and giving him his name of the Golden State Killer before he was called Eron's. Um, And that's just not going to draw as much attention. <laughs> But anyway, it's an amazing book. It is terrifying. So if you can't handle so scary. if you can't handle scary books, maybe don't read it. But do read Michelle McNamara's letter that she wrote to the uh, eventually caught Golden State Killer because that is beautiful and amazing and chilling in its own way, but not nearly as chilling as the way that she writes about the crimes themselves in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that is "I'll Be Gone in the Dark" by Michelle McNamara. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that book is creepy, 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 creepy. It is so good. Um, without being like, um, sensational, like it's just very vivid and very factual and so good. Um, yeah. All right. So my third book is, uh, it's historical true crime. Hooray. And the book is called The Infamous Harry Hayward by, uh, the Infamous Harry Hayward, A True Account of Murder and Mesmerism in Gilded Age Minneapolis by Sean Francis Peters. And so this is a University of Minnesota press book. Yay. Um, and it is about the trial of a guy nicknamed the Minneapolis Monster, who is a serial seducer and a schemer who uh, arranged the killing of a 29-year-old Minneapolis dressmaker named Kitty Gring. And so the book opens when Kitty's body is discovered um, thrown out of a carriage Uh, along uh, a lake in South Minneapolis. Um, A man kind of sees this happen and goes up and tries to save her, and they call the police, and they discover that she has been murdered. Um, I think shot in the head. Uh, And so at first, there are just no suspects because it was like a rented carriage, and she is a dressmaker and doesn't seem to have any, you know, issues or anything like that. Um, And then this guy, Harry Hayward, comes forward and starts – 
kind of like weirdly providing information. Like he like says that he knew her, but like he didn't have anything to do with her and just like super sketchy and weird. Um, And so then the police continue to investigate this crime and try to figure it out. And eventually he is charged with um, paying a man to murder her. And so he is, I think, charged as um, like a conspiracy to have this murder committed. Um, But it's a super interesting book because it also goes into like these kind of weird 19th century stuff. So Minneapolis at the time was really just starting to grow into a major metropolitan area um, at the time that the book is set. And so it's a lot about the growth of that city and what that has meant for the people in it. Um, There's stuff about mesmerism and psycho psychopathy and spiritualism and there's a whole section on yellow journalism and like how crazy the newspapers of the day were with this murder of this like young white woman um and everything like that so it's just a very good like gilded age historical true crime mystery um that i haven't quite finished yet but i've been really enjoying it um so that is the infamous harry hayward a true account of murder and mesmerism in gilded age minneapolis by sean francis peters oh that sounds so good I mean, like, uh, Harry Hayward's picture on the front of it is hilarious. He has this amazing, like, terrible mustache and just, like, he definitely looks like a guy who would feel like he could pay someone to murder someone else and feel like he should get away with it and then be weird about it. Gosh, so. And you put Gilded Age in any subtitle and I'm, I'm probably going to read it. Um, that and Madness, like, yeah. either of those two things. And I'm like, yes, please, let's read that right now. <laughs> Um, no, that's awesome. Also, why can't murderers stay away from the actual crime after it's committed? He probably could have gotten away with it, but he's like, oh, no, I'm going to insert myself into this. Anyway. No meddling kids, just a meddling guy. Exactly. <laughs> um, my last pick, I thought that I wanted to get away a little bit from murder. I feel like I, I always interpret true crime um, as murder. And Kim, you do a, a bit of a better job like coming up with some other things. Um, So I looked into it and this book looks amazing. And I read some of it and it was immediately enthralling and great. And I was like, oh gosh, I need to like bump this up my list to actually read in its entirety. But it is American Fire, Love, Arson, and Life in a Vanishing Land by Monica Hesse. Uh, This, I think it was like an NPR book of the year in 2017. This is about, so fires started in November 2012. Um, in this uh, place called Accomack County in rural Virginia. And they continued for months. And so people started just wait to see what building was going to burn down next. Um, Vigilante groups sprang up. They were patrolling the sort of rural Virginia coast with cameras and camouflage. And like everyone was trying to see like who this arsonist was. Right. And then the problem was there were all of these, like, hundreds of abandoned buildings. So there was a lot of opportunity for this. Um, so the culprit uh, was this man named Charlie Smith, who was the struggling mechanic who, upon his capture, immediately pled guilty. But then the journalist who was, like, looking into this, is she explains um, – as he sort of tells his confession, it like gets weirder and weirder. And this is, I think, the reason that people are so into this book. Um, so he wasn't lighting fires alone. He had this accomplice. And like the reasons for lighting the fires were just very bizarre. And it was this crazy story. So it's sort of along with telling this basic story is also talking about I mean, you know, it's that thing of like, it also tells the story of America. Um, but I think it's the fact that we right now, especially where we are as a country at this moment, um, are in this weird kind of like 
rural versus city thing and like no one understands each other. And I think this is one of those books that is also trying to kind of provide a window into a particular experience and this way of life that um, we might not all be aware of. So again, that is American Fire, Love, Arson, and Life in a Vanishing Land by Monica Hesse. Yeah, I read that one earlier this year. It's really good. Um, She's a a great reporter, and the story just, like, keeps getting stranger and stranger the more you read it. And, yeah, like, this whole idea of, like, abandoned rural places um, and, like, what that means for those communities and what it means for a community of this size to have to deal with, like, a serial arsonist and, like, just the cost of it um, is super interesting. It's something I hadn't really thought about. So that is an excellent – Excellent recommendation. I endorse it. Um, so, yeah, that was our, our true crime, not really a deep dive, but a true crime uh, jump in. A lot of murder, a lot of other things. Uh, you know, that's what it is. So, if you're in the mood for true crime because it's October and things are creepy, then there are some suggestions. Uh, and our third segment is one I think we've done short nonfiction before because um, we, I think we did it. Like the last time there was a readathon, because Dewey's uh, 24-hour readathon is coming up on October 20th, I believe. Is that yes. right? Yes. Uh, so we thought we would do another round of short nonfiction uh, that you can read during a readathon. So, or if you just want to read something short, so you feel very satisfied that you have finished a book quickly. Uh, sometimes I find that very satisfying. You know what I mean? Like just sit down. One hundred percent. So yeah, short nonfiction. Uh, so my first pick is ultra short. It's like 136 pages. And it's called Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions by Valerie Lucelli. Uh, and this is, I put in the notes, it's sort of novella length, but I don't know if novella length is a thing in nonfiction, but yeah, you know what I mean, right? Like that's kind of the, the size we're looking at. Um, and it is a book looking at uh, what happens to undocumented children who come to the United States. Uh, And so the structure of the book is kind of going through the 40 questions that kids are often, or kids are asked on the paperwork that they are required to fill out in order to seek asylum and be allowed to enter the United States. And so the children, like tiny children are being asked these crazy questions, these 40 very specific questions about their their flight from whatever country they're from into the United States, usually some countries in South America. Um, And so Lucelli, she, uh, after hearing about how many kids were coming to the United States and how the um, immigration courts were dealing with them, uh, volunteered to work as a translator in New York's federal immigration court. And so she uses those experiences and the kids that she has worked with and translated for uses their stories to kind of illustrate what is happening in this situation. Um, And so the book was published in April 2017, but she writes about experiences kind of happening earlier than that too. Um, But I think given everything we know about kids and the United States and immigrants, um, it's really taken on a lot of urgency. Um, And I read it and it's it's very readable. Her her writing is so clean and evocative. Um, it's, uh, it's, It's tough to read in parts, but it's very uh, it's uh, very readable, and I, I just thought it was very, very good. So uh, that book is called "Tell Me How It Ends: An Essay in Forty Questions" by Valerie. Look at your important Lucelli. and moving choice. <laughs> I feel a little <laughs> bad about mine. Um, so my first pick I was originally going to do in true crime, and then I was like, "Oh, we have short nonfiction," and I literally read this in less than a day. Um, so it is "My Friend Dahmer" by Dirk Backdurf, which is a real name and amazing. 
Uh, so essentially in 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer, who uh, some would call the most notorious serial killer since Jack the Ripper, I, I feel like that might be overstating things, but he is certainly extremely notorious, um, seared himself into the American consciousness is how the uh, publisher decides to phrase it. But what Dirk Backdurf does is he went to high school with Dahmer. This is a graphic memoir, um, hence the sort of like quick readability of it. Um, it has this very striking, um, distinctive style of uh, illustration. And he just talks about what it was like being in high school with him and what he was like as this high school student, which was essentially this um, shy kid, a teenage alcoholic, um, this person who never really fit in with his classmates um, and who had a very, very troubled home life with his parents. Um, it was uh, it's definitely very sort of interesting in terms of giving you more to Jeffrey Dahmer's story than um, potential cannibal. I think I read somewhere that he might have made up the cannibal thing um, in order to sort of like gain himself more notoriety. But that also could be incorrect information. So I don't know. But uh, I again, I read this really quickly, actually, in a um, state park that I was just like, I'm going to sit and read this graphic <laughs> memoir. Um, but it was really good, really interesting. And um, again, gives you more of a, of a complete story about this, this very notorious character in American history. So that is My Friend Dahmer by Dirk Vector. Interesting. Yeah. So um, for my second pick, I kind of, I was struggling a little bit because a lot of the short nonfiction that's on my shelves right now, it's very political. And I didn't, I don't know, I just wasn't in the mood to talk about that. So when you put this, uh, my friend Dahmer on there, I was like, ah, oh, yes, of course, graphic memoirs. That's a great short nonfiction. Uh, and the one that caught my attention where I was like, boy, this seems like what I need to read right now uh, is Hyperbole and a Half by Ellie Brosh. Um, which we have mentioned on the podcast before. I looked it up and it was in our nonfiction Beach Reads episode. I think we talked about comic memoirs or something like that. Um, so I'm repeating it, but I really just, I just love this book. Um, so it is an illustrated comic memoir um, based on a blog of the same name, Hyperbole and a Half. Um, and in it, Ali Brosh writes um, about these essays, illustrated essays about depression and dogs and childhood and growing up and just all of these different things. And they're so funny and so good. Um, and her illustrations are just, they're so unique and strange and great. She does them in Microsoft Paint, right? Like, so you know what paint looks like. And they're just, they're so weird looking, but like, they're so evocative too, um, that every time I read them, they're just, they're just so great. Um and so her website is still up, even though she hasn't updated in a really long time. So you can go like look at her blog and get an idea of what you're getting into. But um, I remember when I first read this book, um, I laughed so hard that I cried. Like it is so funny. And but they're also it's very touching, very the essay on depression is just like it's so good um, and just really explains and illustrates what that experience was like for her. And it's just really stellar. Um, and she like really hasn't done much online since she published this book, but I, I just looked it up cause I was trying to figure out if she had published anything more recently. Um, and I don't think she has, but I did find this really funny interview with her and Felicia day um, talking about books and inspiration and stuff. So I'll try to remember, or Alice will try to remember to link that in the <laughs> show notes because she's doing them this week. But um, yeah, if you need like a funny, sad, goofy, funny thing, um, graphic memoir, uh, Hyperbole and a Half by Allie Brosh. Is that just, is an amazing. So Do you remember when Hyperbole and a Half was like kind of, like the internet was not that 
old and <laughs> not that it's ancient now, but it was mm-hmm. kind of people would like send you the link over like AOL Instant Messenger. Maybe that's a little – maybe they're not totally contemporaries. Essentially what I'm saying is it reminds me of older internet with a simpler time. It does, and- yeah. <laughs> Every time I see the meme from like the clean all the things but like changing the clean to like whatever all the things with that picture of her like – that car- illustration cartoon of like her in the book and like the ugh, pink dress it just makes me laugh every time I see it because no matter like how it's being used I yeah just- no Allie Brosh is a <laughs> national so treasure um okay so my last pick is Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit uh I think a caveat of this book when it came out a lot of people thought it was a series of comic essays going back to that um it is not it is a book of feminist essays some of which have some funny bits in them but overall it is uh rather serious there's a thing on uh, domestic violence but the actual leading essay men explain things to me sort of centers around this story where Rebecca Solnit was at a party and she and this man were talking about this um particular topic and they talked about this book and this man was like oh this this very important book on this topic came out this year and she was kind of talking like oh yes you know blah blah and he was like oh no 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 like you don't understand and it she had written that book and it was just such like oh my gosh and so she she talks about this thing and and one of her quotes is that most women fight wars on two fronts one for whatever the putative topic is and one simply for the right to speak, to have ideas, to be acknowledged, to be in possession of facts and truths, to have value and to be a human being, which, of course, um, Kim, you were just saying you didn't want to talk about political books. And here I am referencing this uh, Kavanaugh <laughs> hearing twice in one episode. But anyway, um, it feels like it was written a number of years ago, meaning like, well, like five, five years ago. But um It feels extremely relevant right now, unfortunately. Uh, I actually was at a women's retreat the year I read it, which was probably about five years ago. And we were, it was a very serious topic and a very serious, you know, like contemplative time. And we had a speaker and this woman who was sitting right behind me was like, oh, what is that book you have? Because I had brought it down to the room with me. And I was like, oh, it's called Men Explain Things to Me. And I told her the story about Rebecca Solnit being lectured about her own book. And she burst out laughing right when the speaker was like starting. And my corner was like in hysterics for like 30 (laughs) seconds. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) This is very, very good book with some great points. (laughs) Um, So anyway, uh, it's Rebecca, basically everything Rebecca Solnit writes, in my opinion, is gold. Um, And this is her most, uh, I believe, popular, famous um, book. So that is Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit. That's excellent. I almost picked a Rebecca Solnit book to talk about. So uh, I'm glad I went with Allie Brosh instead because then we have more variety uh, amongst our recommendations, uh, which is always good. So uh, yeah, that was short nonfiction. If you want a book that you can pick up and start and finish very quickly, then those are some excellent picks for you. Uh, And finally, we are going to talk about uh, the books we are reading right now. So um, Alice, I'll let you go first. Oh, great. Um, So I was talking about In Cold Blood last week or or last episode episode. It was two weeks ago. And you were talking about how you had read the whole thing. Of course, I had read only a small bit. And I am now <laughs> further in. And oh my gosh, um, the creeping dread that I am feeling. Oh, I know. <laughs> but I also feel like uh, I read Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. And uh, I didn't 
like it that much. And this, I feel like, is genius and brilliant. And just the way that he incorporates, obviously, his his tons of interviews that he did about this um, horrific set of murders um, into the novelistic, right, like writing style of the book. And then also makes you so um, – not like in tune, but like seeing the family and the victims, like in terms of talking about, you know, sympathy and and non-exploitation, I mm-hmm. feel like uh, he does an, an amazing job of that in this. So I'm really, I feel like enjoying it's the wrong word, uh, enthralled by it at the moment. Um, I don't know what mm-hmm. you said that it was, you, you thought it was at the very least something like a, a beautiful book, right? Am I putting words in your mouth? Yeah, his writing is really st- stunning. And like, it's interesting to me that like, even having the benefit of like decades of hindsight on this case and knowing exactly how the whole thing turns out, like he can still build this like incredible sense of suspense and dread and like fascination, but also revulsion with all of these things. Like it's just, yeah, it's a very well done book for sure. Um, so I actually, I am kind of between books. I have just a little bit of the library book by Susan Orlean left, and then I am not really sure what I want to pick up next. Um, part of me is really looking forward to Rebecca Traster's book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, which just came out earlier this month. Um, and I listened to her do an interview on the long form podcast. Um, and it was, it was just incredible. Um, she they, she actually recorded it uh, the day after the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Um, and so in the book, the podcast is almost like a postmortem on that event, even though like it was the day after it had happened literally. And like we still didn't really know how it was going to go and turn out. Um, and it was just she was so incredible and just so smart and interesting about how she writes and what she tries to do with her books and what she tries to accomplish in her editorial writing um, that it just made me want to read the book even more. Um, so that one is kind of sitting on my desk waiting for me. Um, and then also, but like, <laughs> I'm also kind of exhausted by being mad at the world, you know? Um, and so the other book that I have been kind of keeping my eye on because it seems like charming and nice uh, is called The Good Pig, The Extraordinary Life of Christopher Hogwood by Cy Montgomery. Uh, and this is just a charming memoir about um, a family that adopts a pig that they name Christopher Hogwood and all of the things that happen with Christopher Hogwood in their house uh, and with their family um, and what they learned from this pig. So, you know, I feel like I just partially just want something really nice. And so I feel like this pig book might be it. So that's The Good Pig by Cy Montgomery or Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. Kim, you deserve and that was- pig book after everything that's been happening in our country. <laughs> Read all the family I mean, pig like, books that you want. Like sometimes you just need something where you're like, like, I don't, I don't know. You just need something nice, you know? And like, I don't know if I need like a memoir about a dog or whatever, but like, I really like pigs. Like I collected pig figurines when I was a kid. Um, and so like a book about like a charming, nice pig. Oh, that's know. awesome. Just- my, uh, my girlfriend just got back from Las Vegas and she brought me a, um, I think it's called a chanchito. It's that like three-legged pig figurine that, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. I have one of it's those. At my, uh, mm-hmm. It's at my office now, but it's so cute. So, yes, great job with your pig figurine collecting and book reading. I support all of it. <laughs> um, so you can find us on social media. On Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. 
Yes, and uh, as Alice said at the beginning of the show, thank you for everyone who has rated and reviewed us on iTunes. Um, if you haven't yet, that is a great way you can help people find the podcast more easily. Uh, and then while you're there, you can also subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, and so with that, uh, I am Kim Yukura. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 4 Wheel Podcast.